Tonight, it is quite natural for moms to be to feel anxious. But for others, this anxiety can actually grow into a serious phobia they can't escape. CBS 2's explores now what it's like to be pregnant and petrified. There's a picture of me actually pregnant. Rona Cuesta was thrilled to find out she was expecting. I don't look terrified yet. <laughs> but her excitement over having a baby was soon replaced by fear over having to give birth. This gripping, tightening sensation that just makes you feel as if you're being like, like strangled around your around your torso. It's hard to explain. Most expectant moms are a little nervous about what to expect. But for some women, the fear of childbirth can become so extreme, it's an actual condition. Of course, it's perfectly natural for patients to have this healthy concern, this little nervous anticipation of the upcoming birth. That's totally normal. That's part of being human. But for some patients, tocophobia takes over. It's where that healthy concern now becomes a problem. This issue presents as a type of severe anxiety. Basically, it's a phobia that even can cause social withdrawal, social isolation. It can cause a night terrors. It's super fascinating. And we're going to dive into this issue on this episode. Now, if you think, oh, this is super rare. I'm just never going to hear this. This is probably some thing on the fringe of a mental health disorder. Well, it is a mental health disorder, but it's not that much on the fringe. You see, this idea for this episode came from a contact where one of our residents actually encountered this just yesterday on February the 5th. Dr. Madeline Carson sent me a text where a patient described this kind of unhealthy, overwhelming fear of vaginal birth and was looking for a way out. Here's what Dr. Carson sent to me. Hey, Dr. Trapa, do you do pelvimetry testing or know of a provider that offers this testing? I had a patient on Friday request this procedure. Do you recommend it? For background, the patient is a 33-year-old G1 around 25 weeks gestation. She's nervous about undergoing a vaginal delivery and told me her mother had a C-section for cephalopelvic disproportion. Yep, that was Dr. Madeline Carson in her own words, and that was the text that she sent me. And so, of course, I responded back to her. I'm like, oh, she's got tocophobia, for which Madeline responded, wait, what? What is that? <laughs> well, it's extreme fear and avoidance of childbirth fascinating. And we're going to get into that in this episode. Now, of course, you asked about clinical pelvimetry, which just highlights one of the problems of patients looking up information by themselves out of context. So I have to answer that question just briefly. And then we're going to dive into tocophobia. Because while it's relatively new on the radar as of like 2000, of course, the fear of childbirth has been around for decades and centuries. And I'm going to show you that as well. But this is a big issue because ACOG has put out information on various fronts to recognize previous traumas in patients, right? That's why we do trauma-informed care because it's a, if we don't do that and we just kind of do some of our routine things that we do in gynecology and routine things that we do in obstetrics, it can really trigger somebody off who has certain kinds of historic uh, encounters, experiences, or just traits. So we're going to talk about this, tocophobia, what it is, what it isn't, and, and really the controversies that surround this extreme type of anxiety, this extreme type of phobia. So that's where we're going in this episode. Let's talk about the fear of being pregnant and the fear of childbirth. So it is about being pregnant and petrified. 
just trying to keep everyone up to date on evidence-based practice because medicine moves real fast. This is Clinical Pearls. In the 1980s, Rockwell had his hit song, Somebody's Watching Me, which kind of made a little bit of fun, poked a little bit of humor on this weird social phobia where somebody just wanted social isolation, kind of wanted to be by himself. And we had a good time with it, right? I mean, this song was kind of fun. The video was kind of creepy. Michael Jackson was in it. And it was a catchy song. But the topic of this weird social phobia really isn't funny at all. I mean, people really are like this. Poor guy in the song has all of these weird phobias. Uh, what a catchy song and kind of creepy at the same time. So look, guys, uh, let me set the record straight here. I am not making fun of phobias. To be honest, we all got our little quirks and our insecurities. And if you're wondering what my phobia is, I am terrified of heights. Actually, I'm not scared of heights at all. I'm scared of falling from heights. <laughs> and and I know it's super irrational. I don't know where it came from. But that's that's one of the issues that I'm kind of afraid of. Ziplining? No thanks. It took everything in my courage to go and do the little overlook in the Willis Tower in Chicago, the old Sears Tower uh, in the uh, top floor observatory. But I did it. My legs shaking and all. So, you know, it's okay to recognize that people have these weird phobias. But when it comes to something towards a natural process like childbirth, I mean, this can get in the way of, of healthy bonding. It's, it's interpersonal interference. And above all that, it can really uh, cause patients to avoid pregnancy or when pregnant to have a miserable time. And they may never share that with their provider. So it's super fascinating. And man, we've got lots to cover on this one because it goes really deep. But before we get into tocophobia, I mentioned in the intro the whole issue on clinical pelvimetry. So I can't drop that. I can't ignore that. Let's just tackle that beast right now. Yes, I trained with clinical pelvimetry. We would do a scout x-ray during pregnancy, and then we put patients in through um, a helical CT where we would take measurements of the obstetrical conjugate, the true conjugate, the inner spinous diameter. Oh my goodness, y'all don't even understand how complicated and annoying this was especially when women were like in early labor and, and we were trying to figure out if we were going to do a vaginal breach uh, delivery or not based on these measurements. If you don't know what I'm talking about, it was a thing, all right? So there was clinical pelvimetry and then radiographic pelvimetry measuring the diameters of the pelvic inlet 
uh, and of the mid pelvis. Really, uh, its main indication was for allowance of vaginal breach delivery. Uh, and our man, it was on our uh, on our exit exam. I remember that at Parkland. Was like, what is the the minimum uh, interspinous diameter necessary for successful vaginal breach delivery? Wow. I mean, and first of all, can you imagine being in early labor and like, hold still in the CT scanner, ma'am. I'm trying to measure your pelvis. Uh, but we did. Uh, yeah, not a thing anymore because, quote, cephalopelvic disproportion, end quote, which is not favored as a real diagnosis. I mean, just say what it is. It's either fetal malpresentation, persistent occiput transverse, um, uh, it's lack of a rotation, it's lack of fetal descent, because cephalopelvic disproportion, um, that's kind of a big catch diagnosis that's um, super broad and, and not really specific at all. Short to say is CT pelvimetry and x-ray pelvimetry, not a thing. The ACOG and the WHO do not recommend clinical or radiographic pelvimetry because it doesn't affect clinical decision-making because labor dystocia will be found objectively if there's something wrong with the pelvic diameter. Maybe it will just fail to descend. It won't rotate correctly. And, and we'll have that objective marker intrapartum. Now, if you're thinking, well, that's not kind of, that's not very fair. I mean, she has to kind of go through the labor and then find that out. Yeah. I mean, labor's not fair at all. I mean, could you imagine going through the entire labor process after like a prolonged induction and then you get a C-section for failure to descend at second stage? Uh, rude. I mean, it happens. What are you going to do? I mean, we tell patients all the time, whoa, we're making progress. We're, we're, you're changing your cervix. It's not over until that kid is healthy and in the warmer and you are happy and satisfied and it's all done with a vaginal birth because we just never know. So, yeah, labor's not fair. I wish it was, but it's not. The statement from the World Health Organization regarding clinical pelvimetry is, quote, routine clinical pelvimetry on admission and labor is not recommended for healthy pregnant women, end quote. So that's it. Now, what if you find a patient who is four foot eleven and the baby's like, you know, fifteen pounds on your estimated weight? Yes, I said fifteen pounds, just go with it. I'm going somewhere. And then you do an exam, you're like, oh my goodness. I mean, that's a super narrow pelvic arch. You know, the spines just 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 are super prominent, and the sacrum is like, hello, like it's as soon as you put your fingers in. Well, that's good. That's good for prognostication. That's part of shared decision making. You can tell the patient, you know, there's these factors here. I don't think this is going to work, but we just don't know. And I invite you to try to have labor, but you do need to disclose that, right? I mean, you can't just hide information like, well, this is not going to work, but well, go at it. So there is an art to this, all right? But notice what the WHO says, routine clinical pelvimetry. Routine means on everyone. There's no place for that. But it doesn't say, of course, in these very select conditions, like everything else, there's always a caveat where it's part of good clinical management and an overall care. But routine pelvimetry? No. Now, this patient found that on an online site um, that was dealing with, you know, ways to try to predict successful labor. Well, clinical pelvimetry is terrible at that because 
I, it's happened to me where I've checked a pelvis and I'm like, wow, I don't know. It's very Android. I, you know, we just don't know. And then what happens? She totally delivers. And the reverse is obviously true, right? A very prototypical gynecoid pelvis uh, with a, a, a very broad pubic arch, very flat sacrum, uh, just you know, a roomy pelvis. Uh, and I don't mean that in a weird way, but you know what I mean. Uh, and then she gets failure to descend. I mean, it just happens. So because of these difficulties with clinical pelvimetry, it's routine use definitely not recommended. And maybe, with a keyword maybe, in those select conditions like the extremely short stature patient with suspected uh, large for gestational age child where she's a prima gravita, maybe that's part of shared decision making. Cochran also has a statement on this. Quote, there is too little evidence, the majority of which is low quality, to show whether measuring the size of a woman's pelvis, clinical pelvimetry, is beneficial and safe when the baby is in a head-down position. Cochrane goes on to say, the number of women having a cesarean section is increased if women have x-ray pelvimetry that is deemed to be, quote, insufficient, end quote, for labor. However, the quality of evidence to show that clinical pelvimetry improves outcomes is simply insufficient. So there you go. So it's all poor quality. Um, and again, in maybe in very select niche cases, you can use that as shared decision making. But look, guys, I trained with this and every induction Every induction of labor, we had to put as a resident at, at Parkland, we had to give the estimated fetal weight. We have to say there's absence of vulval vaginal lesions uh, as, a, as a kind of a, a, a check, check the box that there's no evidence of clinical herpes that I can tell. Um, and baby's head down and the pelvis is adequate. Well, we can probably leave out the pelvis is adequate part. But it's interesting that the patient found this. So, again, do we never assess pelvic uh uh, adequacy. Um, no, no, no. There's, there's times for it. You can do that in select situations. But routine pelvimetry is not a thing. All right, podcast family. Look, you think I'm opinionated and I am, but this is a really touchy subject. When I say that clinical pelvimetry is super controversial, um, it is. There's this commentary published April of 2022, again, not long ago, that uh, its title is, quote, textbook typologies challenging the myth of the perfect obstetrical pelvis, end quote. Okay, uh, and, and it's, it's very blunt here, which is saying, hey, checking, putting patients into these four little boxes. Uh, remember, it's gynecoid, android, anthropoid, or palipoid. That's the old Caldwell and Moly uh, typologies. It says uh, that is bias. It's basically, um, you know, treating patients different based on bony pelvis size, which has very little prognostic value. So let me just tell you, let me just read you directly from this 2022 publication uh, that's saying we, we really need to throw this thing out and, and use it very selectively, but stop this as mainstream obstetrical uh, evaluation. All right. Quote, we critique the continued inclusion of clinical pelvimetry and the Caldwell-Malloy classification system in biomedical curricula 
for the inherent biases that are part of the development of these evaluation techniques. We call for textbooks, curricula, and clinical practices to abandon these outdated and biased techniques. Now, you go, well, what, how is it biased? Well, it's because gynecoid were typically... Um, um, you know, certain races and anthropoid is more Caucasian and platypoid is this kind. So they're saying that there's some inherent biases in that. All right. But here's what they here's how they wrap this up. Quote, instead of using these false typologies that lack evidence and prognostic value regarding any kind of obstetrical outcome, we propose a change that would both empower pregnant individuals, as well as practitioners, end quote. Short of it is, yeah, they don't like clinical pelvimetry. This was 2022 in April. The lead author uh, was Caroline Van Sickle. And it's just a commentary that this is probably not evidence-based anymore. It could have had a role, but now as you know, we know that, hey, labor is so complex and there's a fetal a caput and molding that, yeah, it's pr- pretty much just not a thing anymore. Oh, I'm sorry. The name of the journal, I forgot that, was Anatomical Record. Yeah, that's actually a journal. For this patient in our example, this real case that happened yesterday on the 5th of February, you, you know, Dr. Carson did the right thing. I mean, I talked to her uh, about the situation. We talked about tocophobia. So look, I mean, the patient is always free to choose a primary elective C-section if she understands the risks and benefits, including abnormal placentation, uh, a longer recovery, blood loss. But right, that's part of patient autonomy. We can't force anybody to have the vaginal delivery. And the patient, honestly, just hearing that, just being heard um, and listened to that she does have a choice, she's like, wow, okay, well, let me actually think about it. Um, it kind of talked her off the ledge. Just getting that verification that validation that hey we're here we get that it, it is scary and and we can talk about it. if you really that a post have vaginal delivery we're not going to make you because that's traumatic that's a great way to give you ptsd and just feeling heard guys she backed off the fence now she hasn't made a decision yet but every visit and we're going to get into this in this episode we're going to manage this we're going to talk about this see if there's something else going on there and there's a time for we can't bombard her with so what happened in your past so did somebody touch you when you're small i mean wait a minute wait a minute there's a time and place and she has plenty of time uh to dive into this and make an informed decision also with social support put her in contact with um maybe a, a good labor support person like a doula uh talk to a certified nurse midwife a for another opinion it, it's okay to to have these various inputs for this patient to make this extremely important uh life decision right how she's going to deliver but but listen to how this whole thing happened, right? Hey, I, I can't have a birth vaginal. I just can't. My mom had a C-section. I mean, my pelvis is the exact same way. I just can't do it. Well, how do you know that? I mean, you haven't even tried. She's a primip. So it's all just, okay, I understand that. This this acknowledgement. Yeah, wow, that's I'm super concerned. Yeah, you know, this is actually a real fear. It's called tocophobia. I, I believe you. And let's work through that. Rather than, ah, we have, we're not going to do that. You just, need to, you just need to buck it up and have a C-section. Uh you know, there's 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 a time for tough love and a time for understanding and a time for both. Anyway, I just wanted to lay that out about clinical pelvimetry. You know, maybe in very select cases, uh, it it could be a thing, but routine use definitely is is no longer favored by ACOG, uh, WHO, and the Cochrane database says, man, 
the the insufficient evidence of is this thing causing more harm than good? I mean, it's definitely not favoring any kind of benefit here. Well, now that we've cleared that, now on to tocophobia. I'm telling you, I'm going to read some things to you that just get your attention. There's there's a commentary that was published that I'll read you exactly uh, what this clinical psychologist wrote uh, as as somebody going through labor. That's that's pretty eye opening. So yeah, tocophobia. First, let's break up those words. Uh, it's toco with a K, okay, T-O-K-O, toco, where you get a tocodynometer. Now, everybody thinks that toco means contraction, like a tocolytic to break contraction. But actually, its original uh, derivation from the Greek, toco actually means um, towards birth or childbirth. So a tocolytic is to prevent childbirth. Uh, a tocodynometer is, is to measure uh, the path towards birth. So tocophobia is, is, in its strictest sense, extreme fear of childbirth. And that's been, of course, expanded to fear of pregnancy. we got to switch gears here for a minute and put on our mental health hats, like our mental health professional role. And remember that it's, it says tocophobia. It's in the name itself. This is a type of phobia. And phobias, according to DSM-5, fall under a anxiety uh, syndromes. Okay, so it's a subtype of anxiety. So what is tocophobia? Well, it's a kind of phobia, which is an extreme type of anxiety. Now, a lot of grayness in here, because tocophobia uh, can actually be a secondary issue from a traumatic birth. That's called secondary tocophobia, which actually is a type of PTSD. Okay, so we see I told you super controversial. And so if you think about these colors, right, they're all in, in a line, but they all start to blend together because it's not like depression lives by itself. Depression typically has a friend with it that says, hey, come on over. Hey, come on, let's live in here. And that's anxiety. Right. And so there's a depression, anxiety that are mixed together uh, with a little sprinkling of PTSD. I mean, they're all kind of mixed together. So they kind of blur. So tocophobia, which is by its strictest definition, a phobia, which is a type of anxiety, can also be a type of PTSD. And ACOG recognizes the traumatic childbirth experience. Guys, my goodness, some of the poor things, some of the things that our poor patients go through in labor, any patient with PPH, that just sets her up for PTSD. Any patient who obviously has a, a hysterectomy uh, because of PPH or a creta, whatever, that can set them up for PTSD. Um, a shoulder dystocia. Are you kidding me? PTSD. Not that every patient is going to get this. I'm talking about the odds ratio is incredibly higher for any patient with some kind of traumatic birth experience. Oh, and it doesn't have to be something terrible like eclampsia or PPH. I'm going to prolong labor uh, with uh, an epidural that doesn't take. And then she's had like three of them in labor, guys. I've had those. Have you all had those patients? Like, my goodness, can you please get some pain relief here? Uh, That's just setting them up for for potentially secondary tocophobia, okay? Now, it has been reported that tocophobia and the rates of that in the U.S. have gone up, which is terrible. However, it's not surprising, is it? I mean, we all know that the rates of anxiety in the U.S., and it's mirrored globally, guys. So those of you in Australia, the U.K., our friends in Canada... Middle East, you're not immune either. I mean, we're just, something is happening to us globally. I mean, we've just, there's plenty to be anxious about. Am I right? I mean, and it's getting out of hand, especially in the U.S. 
the KFF, the Kaiser Family Foundation, who tracks all things kind of health-related, among other things, um, has found this. They last re- reported this in March of 2023, just, um, what, just almost a year ago, that said, wow, the rates of anxiety in those that are late adolescent, early adults keeps rising year after year, and COVID obviously didn't help that. We, we've just lost some of our ability to cope, to handle stress, uh, and to kind of do normal adulting. I mean, I'm sorry, guys. It's just the reality of it. Now, where this coming from is multifactorial. Everybody agrees that there's influences from the media. There's influences from worldwide stressors. There's influences from genetics. There's influences from social media. Uh, and I'm going to get into media in a minute because that's actually been studied as well, that the way that childbirth and some of the problems are portrayed in the media cause uh, a fueling of this fear. See, here's the catch, guys. I told you it's going to be controversial. Here's the catch. Yes, maternal mortality rates, specifically in the U.S., are horrible. Okay, And there's a variety of reasons for that. Horrible. But think about if you are 20, uh, and you're pregnant, and all you've heard in the last three years is the, the chance of women dying in childbirth is incredibly high. What do you think that's going to cause? So there's this fine line. Y'all get this. There's a fine line between facing reality and, and acknowledging a problem, which is our U.S. maternal mortality. That's a problem. Uh, and we have to fix it. At the same time, there's, a, there's the, the, the adverse effect of that. The side effect of that is, are we potentially scaring women to death? I mean, let's be, this is a reality, guys. It's not my opinion. Many a commentary on this, trust me, because we've spent a lot of time looking this up. And, and it's real. It's, that's one of the side effects of, of, of listening to the media. And now, I'm not against the media. Obviously, I'm on social media, and we do a lot of media appearances and quotes. I, I, I think for, in the right way, with credible sources, in the right perspective. Guys, how many times have we said that in this episode? With you have to put everything in the right perspective, okay? Um, then, then the message can be delivered correctly. But outside of the right perspective, the message can be devastating. Crazy, right? But this whole issue of anxiety in the U.S. is why, uh, you know, deaths due to drug overdose have increased in, in late adolescents and young adults. And even remember, guys, ACOG put this out as a what is happening um, that rates of suicide have gone up in pregnancy, all having to do with our ability to cope and anxiety and PTSD issues, mental health, mental health, guys. And I'm not going to be here preaching. I've told you, i got issues. I mean, I'll be the first to tell you. And my wife, who is a therapist, <laughs> irony, ironic, uh, will tell you, uh, I mean, I got issues and I'm working on them. But, and anxiety is one of them. Uh, and I'm very open on that in our in our uh, TED Talk. I, I got issues, but I'm aware of it and I'm trying to control it so it doesn't control me. So all to say, it's no wonder that tocophobia has increased because we're just an anxious people. There was a nice commentary on this published in 2021 in BMJ Opinion. This commentary was, quote, tocophobia. Why aren't we talking about it more? End quote. This was, guys, 2021. So it's not like, you know, 15 years ago, 30 years ago, relatively recent. And here's what I found impactful. This was written by a clinical psychologist who is licensed and sees patients, who's educated. 
Guys, a mental health worker, for heaven's sakes, okay? And I want to read you her experience with tocophobia, both as a mental health care professional and coming from somebody who herself was pregnant, all right? Listen to this, because you're going to go, wow, I didn't even know tocophobia was a real thing. But listen to her perspective, okay? Here it is. Quote, As a clinical psychologist, I have been rigorously taught, assessed, and examined on understanding and treatment of mental health disorders. However, not once were my colleagues and I ever taught about tocophobia. She goes on to say, In fact, it wasn't until I was pregnant that I came across this term. Tocophobia can be debilitating and a lonely experience, made worse by the lack of awareness around it, even from healthcare professionals. Guys, y'all get where she's going? Yee. Now, hold on. Hold on. Here, here's where she's going to keep going. When I experienced it, I had frequent nightmares about the prospect of delivery and daily anxiety attacks. I was too scared to tell other people about my pregnancy, and I covered it up as much as I could to prevent anyone about asking me about it. Now, guys, let me stop there for a minute. Did you all get that? This is a licensed clinical psychologist who's covering up her pregnancy because she doesn't want to talk about it because of the fear that she had of delivery of morbidity and potentially of dying okay and i said at the beginning those are all normal concerns we should we should we can't ignore it's not like rainbows and lollipops things happen but when when the concentration of the bad thing oversees supersedes all of the other good stuff um, it just makes her miserable. And she was miserable. And she never didn't tell anybody about this. And she felt that the entire OB community had these gaps in knowledge or would minimize uh, her fear. So what a perspective, right? 2021 in BMJ opinion. Of course, I'll post that link on our reference page. Tocophobia is the fear of pregnancy and childbirth. Women who have this phobia have a pathological fear of giving birth and at times even of getting pregnant to begin with. Now, this fear has led to women having interpersonal conflicts, uh, social isolation, separation, um, and it has led to substance abuse in some cases. Now, tocophobia comes in two parts, okay? Primary occurrence or primary tocophobia is a morbid fear of pregnancy and childbirth in a woman who's never experienced pregnancy. Okay, And so that typically comes from some other kind of trauma, uh, other kind of phobia or or a experience of somebody dying in childbirth. And that gives them this. That's not for me. I'm done. Like I'm never going to get pregnant. And it is a real avoidance behavior. Right. So that's primary occurrence tocophobia. Secondary occurrence tocophobia is a fear of childbirth because they had a traumatic childbirth experience. Guys, childbirth is rough, man. I mean, it's just call it what it is. It's rough. And this is why we just all look. It's hard to be super touchy-feely and cozy at 3.30 in the morning. I get that, especially when you've been up already like 20 hours. Uh, I get it. I mean, I'm still in it, guys. I still take call and I love it. But it's it's every time I go into a room, I have to remind myself, it's it's not about me. It's about them. It's not about me. It's about them. I'm there to provide a service. Uh, they're my client. They're my patient. And it's not their fault. Okay, it's not their fault. I'm going to get irritated. Uh, and, and it really brings me back. I'm telling you guys, I do that frequently. I had these conversations with myself that uh, be nice, be nice, be nice, because sometimes 
you ain't feeling it. Can I, I'm just trying to be honest, right? Uh, yeah, yeah, I'm just, it's just the reality of it. Or maybe it doesn't happen to you. I don't know. It happens to me. And, and so the things that we take, that we say, or that we respond, uh, or how we respond in a labor room can kind of set a patient off in the future. It's amazing and lead her to these avoidance behaviors. And a lot of that is, has to do with uh, healthcare providers' attitudes, behavior, conversation, uh, and lack of comfort. So if anything else, just this acknowledgement, this empathy of I know you're hurting. I get that. What We're here together. This is the team. Uh, works. This is why having a, a good Evidence-based doula is super helpful. It's that reassurance. And doulas totally help prevent uh, the experience of a traumatic event, even when a traumatic event occurs. Super well-published, right? And we've talked about doulas on another episode. Uh, in a past episode, where we talked about Ashley uh, Davenport-Fry, one of our labor and delivery nurses who's also a doula, who just is amazing and has this comforting nature to tell the patient, you're going to be okay, we're going to do this for you. Basically, it's your coach in the ring, and we all need that. Okay, that was a nice soapbox moment. Now that I've gotten off that, let's get back to what I'm supposed to be talking about, which is back on the script. Now, I love how we talk about things new, like, Toco- this is tocophobia. Okay, because that was published not long ago. It was just published, like, in 2000. And I'll give you that reference in a minute. Like, patients weren't uh, afraid of of this uh, until 2000, right? No, no, it's been around for a long time. If you actually go back in, in the medical history, I mean, of course, duh, women were afraid of childbirth uh, in centuries past. There was this writing by Dr. Oziander in 1797, where he described, this was in Germany, he described a woman uh, who was near suicidal because of fear of childbirth, okay? And same thing, 1858, this was Dr. Louis-Victor Marseille uh, out of France, who wrote that he had a patient, quote, who was so privately convinced that they were going to die from childbirth that they sought to find different ways to avoid the procedure, all right? So... Yeah, I mean, this is nothing new. Women have always had this fear. And let's put it again in proper perspective. And we're talking about 18th century, uh, late 19th century or mid 19th century. They should have been afraid. I mean, my, my goodness, childbirth was a big cause of, of maternal and infant death. So that's legit. I get that, right? But now some of the side effects of medical progress is that some of the commentaries that we found on this were like, well, this is what makes tocophobia now irrational because it's not like delivering in the 18th and you know 19th century because of our techniques and our interventions and our care bundles. So that's what makes this an irrational fear. Now, now, I, and I have I take offense to that because yes, I totally agree. We now know about germ theory. Thank you, Ignis Simon Weiss. We know about postpartum hemorrhage, and we've got care bundles. Absolutely, we're much better, but we still got issues. We just said about the U.S. mortality rate. So to say it's irrational because medical care is advanced is both right and condescending at the same time. And there's, I mean, I'm telling you guys, I've read, there's published commentaries on this that say, basically, women need to get a grip. Uh, The chance of dying, yes, it's real, but it's really rare when you consider what it used to be. Well, 
that's not much of a relief. I mean, there is still a chance of death. And postpartum hemorrhage is a big cause of that. So is uh, uh, intracranial bleed from eclampsia. Guys, I've had a maternal death. I've had two uh, intrapartum in 23 years. And oh my gosh, it's horrifying. My first one, I thought I was going to, I'm like, I'm done. I couldn't take it. It was horrifying. Um, uh, ugh, it's just terrible with the undiagnosed decreta where she exsanguinated right in front of us. So Yes, things do happen. Yes, it's it's okay to have a concern. It just shouldn't be an unhealthy concern. It shouldn't become a phobia. It shouldn't wake you up in the middle of the night with night terrors. I feel terrible that that's a thing, um, but it is. So this is why we, uh, again, why it's controversial, right? We We want to recognize it, but we don't want to feed it. We want women to get better from it, but at the same time, we don't want to minimize their risk. You see, it's all of these things that make this thing a complicated issue. Plus, there's more confusion, like this specific term, tocophobia, doesn't actually live in DSM-5. It's just under other uh, pregnancy-related phobias, NOS. It needs to have its own code. Same thing with uh, ICD-10. uh, 10 codes. It's just kind of you stick it in as a general phobia. Now we've got it much better. We know the term. Again, as you saw in the news clip, uh, there's getting some media attention. ACOG recognizes this as a, a form of PTSD. And I'm going to get into that in a minute. So there's a lot of things here that that come into play. Still controversial. There's a lot of lack of awareness about it. And this patient, guys, again, if you think you're never going to see it, we had it 24 hours ago with our patient who didn't come in and said, hey, I have tocophobia, said, I'm super afraid of having a vaginal delivery. Why don't we just call it a day? Why don't we just say it's just not going to happen? Just give me a section. Now, at face value, you're like, she can choose. I mean, that's her right. But if you go deeper, take the time to go deep, go, what's going on here? You get to the heart of this, that it was this, this extreme fear of vaginal birth. And so this is how this thing presents and why patients don't come out just so openly and say, I'm, I'm really frightened, guys, or I'm afraid of dying. You have to have these real uh, conversations with these patients and we have to ask. And no, this doesn't have to happen as an adult. You don't have to have a, a traumatic birth experience to develop secondary uh, tocophobia. This can actually start in the teenage years. And this can start with any kind of traumatic, sexual, violent episode like uh, uh, rape, uh, incest, domestic violence, any of those things where there's reproductive manipulation. Guys, it's heartbreaking that these things can. And think about it. This happens to if a a young girl, say 12, 13. Okay, I hate to even say that has sexual assault um, that that could rob her not only of her peace of mind and, and piece of her, her bodily integrity at that time, but could work its way down uh, into fear of childbirth years down the road where, you know, she's trying to have a family, uh, bond with a partner. These are things that pop up uh, later on. So, gosh, it's just it's just so interesting, isn't it? And in terms of prevalence, uh, it's really hard to, 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 to track down because every population is different, has to do with age, past history, social norms is a big thing, right? All of these factors come in. But in general, this real phobia of pregnancy or childbirth, anywhere from I've seen as low as 5% to as much as 15%. That's how broad this issue is because, again, it's, it's how you define it. It's uh, your patient population, and I have a high-risk population. I'm sure I'm on that 14 15% um, 
end versus the lower 5%. But these are all issues that we have to be aware of. There's a nice uh, publication in the Journal of Affective Disorders that found that there are some characteristics here that can uh, give you flags that the patient may be at risk of having this, either as a primary occurrence or as as a uh, PTSD secondary occurrence. And it's things that, duh, that you already know right off the bat. It's having a neonate who is born with a need for NICU admission, uh, extreme uh, prematurity, uh, any kind of pre-existing mental health condition like depression or anxiety. If they already have a history of PTSD, they're at big, big risk of being triggered and, and uh, pushed over the egg with the childbirth or with a negative childbirth experience. So all of these factors have been very well documented, and it was even in a 2016 meta-analysis that found that all of those things, in addition to uh, a negative uh, you know, labor experience, including operative birth, whether uh, operative abdominal or operative vaginal, all of these things can lead to future avoidance of pregnancy. And it's not just about avoiding the future pregnancy. It has to do with bonding with the child. So all of these things, super well published, uh, and they make sense as you would think. All right, guys, let's take a quick, quick, just a few second break. Let that sit and process. And when I come back, as we get ready to wrap this up, I want to talk about PTSD after childbirth because this is definitely in ACOG's radar. So if you're getting ready to do oral boards coming up, uh, this is a nice review. Uh, and if you're asked, tell me about PTSD after childbirth. We're going to give you some some real high-level facts here, uh, including the four R's of, of trauma-informed care. Because if you ever ask, what are the four R's? We're going to make it super plain and super easy as we cover that coming up in just the next few seconds. Now, we all know that perinatal depression screening is recommended by ACOG. That's nothing new. That was an ACOG committee opinion number 757. However, and ACOG says this, it's right there in the bulletin, as many as one-third of women with depression, one-third, guys, 33%, also meet criteria for PTSD. I told you, this is... Yep, we all get that screening for perinatal depression is recommended by ACOG. That was an ACOG committee opinion number 757. So yes, screen for depression, as well as substance abuse, domestic violence, sexual assault, all the other stuff that we have to do in an attempt to take care of the patient holistically, okay? But here's the catch. As many as a third of those women with depression, a third, also meet criteria for PTSD, that was published in 2017 in Frontiers in Psychology. See, guys, I told you these things blend together. It's not like I have depression. I'm good. I have my one mental health disorder. That's good. I'm good. No, no, no. They come with friends. And according to that study in 2017, one third of depression patients also meet criteria for PTSD. PTSD symptoms rarely receive similar attention because they live in the shadows and they blend so well with anxiety syndromes and depression. ACOG recognizes and endorses the value of screening for trauma-informed care to try to tease out which patients have PTSD so that we don't cause them more psychological harm 
then good. So this is why being aware, asking an initial intake. Um, this, uh, guys, I'm not trying to be nosy. I just got to know is anything in your past so we can be aware of that. We can we can uh, uh, tailor to care towards you. Anything we need to be aware of. It's okay to ask that with the proper motive and intent. ACOG recognizes in its committee opinion number 825 from April 2021, the four R's. All right, guys. So if you're asked on your oral board exam, uh, tell me about trauma-informed care. Ah, the four R's. Super easy. It all boils down to this. We don't want to cause more harm to the patient. I don't mean physically. I mean emotionally and mentally than good. We're just there to try to be patient advocates. We're trying to help. But sometimes things that we can do to help as routine care, like put one foot over here and one over there and expose yourself, that's super triggering for somebody who's had sexual assault. So the four R's in a nutshell is respectful of where they've been, what their experiences are, and meet them there. That's that's the nutshell of the four R's. But the four R's obviously mean something. It's number one, realize that trauma happens and that you may not be aware of that. And it has long-term sequelae. So number one is realize that it's a real problem. That's the first R. The second R is recognize signs and symptoms of trauma in patients, uh, in other family members, even in clinic staff, so that we know how to relate one to each other the most effectively, right? So number one, realize that it's a problem. Second, recognize warning signs in a patient, okay? Three is respond uh, by doing something about it, asking the patient, having trauma-informed policies, make sure to have a, a chaperone, make sure to explain to the patient, offer a handheld mirror. That's all the respond part. And then the last four is very easy. It's the goal of what we're trying to do, and that's prevent re-traumatization. So the four R's is realize that women have, people have gone through stuff, man. Two is recognize signs or symptoms in verbal and nonverbal cues, respond, and prevent re-traumatization. Realize, recognize, respond to prevent re-traumatization. Those are the four R's. Now, we can all do things to try to prevent childbirth PTSD. Prevention strategies, again, are talking to the patient. Um, after an adverse event, having team debrief to prevent second victimization. Second victims are, are, are things of how healthcare providers take home with them that negatively impact them. And then they could go into their own PTSD issues and have structured debriefs when the patient is ready and if she's willing to, to answer questions. Don't ignore it. Face it. Deal with it in a compassionate and empathic way. All right? ACOG says, especially after things super traumatic like shoulder dystocia and a stillbirth or hysterectomy, you've got to make time to address these things with the patient at bedside and call ancillary staff when necessary. Now, thankfully, we've recognized tocophobia and there's ways to manage this and there's effective ways to deal with PTSD that are the same ways of treatment, whether it's pregnancy related or not. Now, let me, let me just give you this little uh, transparency here. My wife, uh, her area of specialty as a therapist is PTSD uh, and she does EMDR, Okay. EMDR is, wow, it's wicked cool. It is eye movement, desensitization, reprogramming. It sounds like hokey stuff. If you're like, wait, you want to do what with your eyes? It's basically doing a series of eye movements back and forth while uh, having cognitive behavioral therapy. It's a type of, of cognitive behavioral therapy that's trauma-focused that rewires the brain. Now, the science is legit. I'm not going to get into that, but I'm just telling you, 
Um, I, it, look, guys, I've had some trauma in my life uh, that's just horrific. Uh, and I can tell you EMDR works personally. I'm still working through stuff. And I, I was super um, uh, opposing this. I'm like, this thing is not going to work. Holy moly. I don't know. There's something that happens that, in your brain with this thing. And it's one of the listed therapies uh, in ACOG. When ACOG has their bulletin of trauma-informed care, it's like, look, sometimes pharmacotherapy is necessary. Sometimes cognitive behavioral therapy is required. The combination is best along with support, uh, having proper support uh, people around you. But without a doubt... Uh, EMDR is a way to try to tackle PTSD. So I encourage you, if you've never heard of EMDR, eye movement, desensitization, reprogramming, it is legit. It's been used in veterans. It's been used after natural disasters, mass shootings, uh, and it's uh, even got a special focus for perinatal medicine. All right, guys, before we close this up, I want to leave you all with uh, three main points. One, tocophobia. Yes, it's a thing. And like, like I said yesterday, our patient encounter highlighted this. And they don't walk in saying, I think I've tocophobia. They come in with these other things that's part of the R uh, in the four R's, which is recognize the flags that she's trying to tell you. So tocophobia. Second is, you know, I I frequently get this from somebody in my team Um you know, do you do you think you're oversharing? I mean, that that's what uh, I'm just to be honest, guys. I, this is the conversations that we have, and uh, maybe. Um, but the truth is, look, I love what I do. This this gives me fulfillment. This is something that I think is uh, part of my design is medical education, guys. I was this way as a medical student. I was the guy people studied with. Uh, I was uh, the, the guy, the resident who you know uh, p- people would come up and ask, "Hey, Hector, what do you think about this?" Even my upper levels, how cool is that? I love that, and that was my that was part of my identity. Um, I don't know. I mean, look, guys, I'm a, this is not a Doctor Phil episode. It's not Oprah, but I'm just telling you. Um, when asked, you know, hey, you think you're oversharing? No, because the last thing that I want to give out is the impression that, uh, I mean, look at me. I have it all figured out. I have done this. Guys, I'm thankful for opportunities that people have let me have. Uh, The things that I've been able to do is because somebody believed in me and poured into me. I can tell you that all throughout from adolescence to early adulthood that these opportunities were not because of me. It's because uh, my role is to go look for them. I mean, I'm out there. I put myself out there. But somebody has uh, has poured enough into me to allow me to do these things. Um, all to say, the last thing I, I, I want to give this impression is I've got it all figured out. No, guys, look, I, I, there's issues, man. And I'm just trying to be honest. I, this makes me happy. This gives me fulfillment. This is my happy place. I've said that in past episodes that I, even when I was a kid, when stuff was crazy in my home environment, I ran into books and journals and, and things to, uh, to read as my escape. And I don't mean medical journals. I mean journaling, like I, I would write uh, in books. That was my escape. And so that's a lot. I, I never want to give this impression that that I've got it all figured out because everybody's got some issues. I'm just very transparent with it because I don't want to hide that. That's the second thing. And the third thing is, yeah, EMDR, it's legit. I mean, there's a variety of things. Well, if it's anxiety-driven, then there's a place for for uh anxiolytics in an acute urgent situation not routine but there's medications that can help maybe it's lexapro um maybe it's ssris whatever the patient needs 
is, is have this openness to go, I understand that you're afraid. I, I understand that um, this is a real thing for you, that you're afraid of dying in childbirth. My goodness, the last thing we want to do is minimize that and, and say, how can, we gotta, let's see how we can work through this. Is there something that I can do as a physician, that you know, I can do as a CNM, I can do as a PA, MP, whatever, or do we need to call some help? Because uh, I, I just I want you to get the right person. Maybe that's a, a therapist. Maybe it's a psychologist. Uh, there's a place for a psychiatrist, but the majority of this is stuff that a psychologist can do uh, outside of prescribing medications. I just wanted to to lay that out there. That number one, tocophobia is real. Second, is we all have got issues, man. Um, maybe you don't. Fantastic. Um, I'm, that's great. <laughs> I don't know what that means because I've got issues. Uh, and, and and just put yourself in the patient's perspective. It just keeps you humble and keeps you empathic. And then three, thank goodness for therapies and thank goodness for literature that that's out there. And, and now we can give this thing a name and recognize it. All right, podcast family, that brings us to a wrap. We have covered tocophobia the fear of childbirth or fear of pregnancy to begin with. As always, we're thankful for you. We're glad you're part of our podcast community and we'll see you on another episode of Clinical Pearls.